Principle eight, eschew the good for the best. It gets easier, but it never gets easy. In my experience, the majority of publicly available information about entrepreneurship only tells a small portion of the story. Social media, keynote addresses, and television shows put forth the consumable and sexy stories that are designed to draw clicks and views. There's nothing wrong with this take as long as you know that the majority of an entrepreneur's work is a long, hard slog of seemingly never-ending problem-solving. This chapter outlines the brass tacks and the unsexy side of entrepreneurship that is necessary for success on that journey. Part of that journey, as simple as it sounds, is just making your business work by learning to say no. Like when looking at the menu at the Cheesecake Factory, you will have seemingly infinite options on how to deploy your resources. Your inner critic, employees, investors, vendors, and customers will all give you unsolicited advice, and your job is to know how to filter through the noise to focus on what matters. It is helpful to strip away all that is unnecessary by asking yourself if your decision helps support any of these foundations of any business. Number one, cash is king. Number two, solve a problem. Number three, see around the corner. Number four, find people better than you and get out of their way. And number five, just keep going. These principles propelled my path in business and without them, I wouldn't have stayed afloat for long. Cash is King. In the book, The One Thing by Gary Keller with Jay Papasan, the authors encourage readers to ask this pertinent question. What's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary? This question is important for every day of our lives, but it is more important at the beginning of the journey of any good entrepreneur. It has the ability to strip away all that is unnecessary in order to serve the greater purpose. So, what is the first thing to focus on as a good entrepreneur? Cash. Cash is like oxygen. If you run out of it, your business is dead. Without cash, your vision, values, and purpose won't matter. Taking care of your stakeholders won't matter. You won't have much to worry about because you won't have a business. That's why you have to find a way to marry meaning with profit in your work. You have to find a way to sell your product or service at a price that the public is willing to pay. All business at its core is one person creating a mutually beneficial relationship with the other person. And the price of the product is determined by what your customer is willing to pay for it. So the first step of a clear path is to find out who your customer is. You can have a really cool widget, but if no one wants to use it, you don't have a business. If you can get into the market, listen carefully to your audience and help your customers articulate to you what they really want, you can build a product that is truly for them. You can create a relationship between your business and your customers that is mutually beneficial, and you can start turning profit with a purpose. One of the quickest ways to generate additional cash is to start charging more money for your product or service. It may seem counterintuitive to raise prices as you are trying to grow your market share, but companies are often too hungry to eat. They don't charge enough to become profitable and it becomes a nasty cycle that is hard to escape. Why not charge more and test what the market is willing to pay from the very beginning? If they are willing to pay more, then you are able to manage your cash more easily and remove one of the barriers to success. If they aren't willing to pay more, 
then your product may not be as good as you think. And it is much better to find that out sooner than later. Controlling your cost is a second way that you can manage your cash. Fancy offices and over-the-top perks are necessary in some markets to recruit in-demand employees. But in most cases, those perks are often overkill and the juice is not worth the squeeze. Until you have found your footing and have begun to optimize your business, do not expose it to unnecessary costs. There will come a time in the future when you can reap your rewards, but until that time comes, it is necessary to live on a budget, making sure the overwhelming majority of your cash goes to directly enhancing your product or service. As an example, when we built the first version of our software for Rise, I told the developers I had three criteria. Number one, it had to be beautiful. Number two, it had to let our members book their flights in 10 seconds or less. And number three, it had to be able to charge credit cards on a recurring basis. There were countless requests for additional bells and whistles that I turned down because they didn't serve these criteria. The software developers and employees meant well, but they didn't have the same responsibility as I did. As a good entrepreneur, it is important to become comfortable with making other people uncomfortable in order to serve the values, vision, and purpose of your company. Frequently, businesses are unable to be cash flow positive from the beginning, and a capital infusion is necessary to get started. If you don't have the funds to bridge the gap between an idea and generating cash, you will need to look for outside capital from investors. But at some point in the future, you are going to need to be profitable in order to pay them back, so it always comes back to making your business work by generating cash. One of the worst places to be as an entrepreneur is in the season of perpetually raising money. Until you are generating a profit, investors are subsidizing your product, not letting the market determine its true value. Additionally, for most entrepreneurs, raising money is hard and it takes a toll on you emotionally. I know a lot of people who have raised money for their companies, but I have yet to come across one who would describe the process as enjoyable. The upside of raising money is that it validates your idea. I have a friend who is a billionaire and he needed to raise $100 million for a business. I asked him why he didn't just use his own money. He looked at me, chuckled a little bit, and said, Nick, almost everyone around me has something to gain by keeping me happy, so they are likely to tell me that my ideas are great ideas. So, I like to raise money because most humans love money more than anything else, and only after they wire me their money do I know that they really believe in my idea. Man, talk about a situation tailor-made for a mensch. There are plenty of reasons that raising money may be the right path for you, but be very wise with regard to the amount of money you raise, knowing that the bill will come due in the future. Solve a problem. Becoming an entrepreneur is just taking something that annoyed you and spending most waking moments thinking about it. My freshman year of college, we often stayed up way too late. And because we wanted to sleep more than we wanted breakfast, we hit the snooze button till the very last minute. We perfected the getting ready part, moving from bed to walking out the door in only a few minutes. The only problem? We couldn't find a way to make it to the cafeteria for breakfast. And because most college freshmen value sleep above all else, most of our friends have the same dilemma. Every good entrepreneur does one thing well, solving problems. And they are willing to sacrifice their own comfort to do so. In this case, my roommate Mark, the same Mark that almost died with me in Colorado, and I decided to solve the breakfast problem by opening an all-you-can-eat pancake restaurant in our dorm room. For $3, 
you could get one pancake, but for $7, you could get all you can eat. Pro tip, we made the pancakes large and very thick so almost no one could eat more than two. We went to Walmart and bought a flat top skillet, a spatula, and a family-sized box of generic pancake mix. Then we advertised throughout the dorm. The next morning, we had to line out the door for breakfast. In one day, we were counting cash while flipping pancakes. We had satisfied customers, the rest of the freshmen were fed, and we were banking money for our weekend dates. It was a problem solved. Until our door manager shut us down for running a restaurant out of our room. Turned out that was against the rules. That experience taught me two things. The first was that if I was experiencing a problem, chances are somebody else was experiencing the same one. Mark and I weren't the only hungry freshmen sleeping in every day. It was an issue for most of the people in our dorm. So much so that people were willing to pay for a solution. The second thing I learned was that being an entrepreneur was exhilarating. It provided an identity for me. It gave me a chance to be the creative, fun leader who people looked up to. And I liked it. It felt natural, like home. The pancake business in my dorm room was the first of my entrepreneurial ventures. I had been fortunate to be part of several teams that have built companies from almost nothing into successful enterprises. We've created entirely new categories of businesses, provided jobs, given excellent returns to our investors, and even saved lives by applying technology to the world of oncology in one of those businesses. There were hundreds of days and sleepless nights when we didn't know if we would ever find success on any level. We took incredible risk with our money, relationships, and any other resources we could leverage. And the risk paid off because at the root of all of our businesses, we were trying to solve problems that was always a part of our path. Every good entrepreneur should always be asking, what problem am I trying to solve? Making that a clear part of your path to business will ensure that your business is always relevant. Why? Because it's providing a much needed solution to attention or pain point for your customers. The entrepreneurial journey is in some ways a contract that you make with yourself to be unsatisfied until you solve a problem. My advice is to make sure the problem you pick is a big one in order to reap a large return on your investment. See around the corner. I hear CEOs talk about how lonely it is at the top, and I agree. The weight of the world is sitting on the shoulders of the CEO, and often they bear the weight alone. They are at the tip of the spear, powerful yet alone. The CEO is typically the only person in the whole organization who has a view into all the key aspects of the business. They confer with the sales and marketing leaders in order to know the outlook for sales or how much cash they are going to generate. Then they meet with the head of operations to see how they are doing on executing on the promises delivered to the customer and what it costs to do so. Then the head of finance provides an outlook of how much cash will be left over and advises what to do with it. The CEO's privileged position gives them access to all the different information necessary to make the hard decisions. At the beginning of any venture, the entrepreneur often holds all of these positions because they are the only employee. This season is great training for understanding all the aspects of the business and how a decision in one part of the business affects the others. The head of sales may want to hire more sales executives in order to hit their aggressive sales goals, but the head of finance just delivered the news that one of the largest clients is consistently paying their invoices late, tightening cash flow and not allowing the business to make the investments at that time. It is the CEO who needs to make the next decision. The CEO has to be able to communicate to finance and sales what is best for the business. They have to see both what is happening now and what's ahead. 
In other words, the CEO has to be able to see around the corner. To see around the corner is to synthesize information from outside of the organization and inside the organization. It's to predict what the future will bring and align the company to take advantage of that future. It's an important part of defining a clear path. Because if you want to follow a clear path as a good entrepreneur, you have to be able to see every twist and turn along the way. As a good entrepreneur, you have to be able to see truth, ingest it, and articulate it, even if it's harsh reality to face. Anytime I have a new idea, I ask a couple of my friends, my mentors, to grab drinks or dinner. There, I pitch them my idea and gauge their reactions. Most of my ideas never get past the stage. These are close friends who aren't afraid to tell me when my ideas stink. They're not afraid to help me see around the corner for better or for worse. I take the few ideas that make it out of that gauntlet of scrutiny and start to socialize them with a larger group of people. I try to gauge the industry expertise of the second group. I'm not a believer that you need to be an expert in a field to be successful. In fact, sometimes expertise can be a problem. It tempts you to accept what has always been as opposed to finding a new way. But leaning into the voices of experts at different points in the path can be helpful. In the case of Rise, I knew that I couldn't fly the planes, but I also knew I could hire pilots to do that. So I started telling friends about my idea, and they did what they always do if they like my idea. They offered to find a way to help. When your idea is good, people line up to help you on your journey, sensing an opportunity to leave a legacy for themselves. Before long, I was in touch with a couple of pilots and a couple of owners of planes and a couple of owners of the management companies of planes. I would have coffee, lunch, dinner, or drinks with these people, whatever it took to get the expertise I needed to help me see around the corner. This part of the path was exhausting, but it was pure fun for me. What I learned during those exploratory meetings was that the average private plane in America is woefully underutilized. These multi-million dollar planes sit around in hangars waiting to be used for much of the time. Knowing this, I picked up the phone to call a dozen plane management companies in Texas. I introduced myself and pitched them my idea. And you know what happened? Almost every single one of them told me I was crazy. No one from outside the industry could be successful. It's way too complicated, they would explain. But eventually a couple operators met with me, thinking I might be the solution to their problem of plateaued growth. Using existing planes and operators was the linchpin to our business because we were creating a two-sided marketplace. At this time, Uber and Lyft were growing rapidly, and they were able to do so because they were able to use assets owned by other people. At Rise, I called this OPP, as in other people's planes. By not owning the planes ourselves, we could grow more rapidly. I knew that because I was always looking around the corner. If we tried to buy the planes, we would need tens of millions of dollars now and hundreds of millions of dollars later if my growth projection panned out. Every good entrepreneur needs to look ahead. They need to see around the corner of the path they're on so they can not only predict and project growth, but see and avoid failure as well. Find people better than you and get out of their way. In my case, one of the questions that continually came up was, how am I going to get planes in the air? It was a valid question for my business, and I didn't know the answer. Even though I had the idea in my head, I needed to get both the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, which regulates air safety, and the Department of Transportation, DOT, which regulates consumer protection to agree with me. That wouldn't be that hard, right? Well, I was about to run smack dab into the messy middle of federal government bureaucracy. I just had no idea what that task would entail. 
The key to making the whole business model work was OPP, but because it had never been done before, we had to make the case for it. We researched the law, created a case for allowing us to provide air travel this way, and presented it in writing. Being new to this industry, I relied heavily on the experts and attorneys to help with this step. But I quickly figured out that in spite of paying handsomely, my experts were not versed in the way of entrepreneurship, and our expectations were vastly different. I had been promised that their exorbitant fees were worth it because they knew people who could expedite the process. Turned out that was code for, I did two decades of hellish work on the inside so I could get out and sell my access to the highest bidder. Regardless, I just held my nose and paid the fees. After we submitted the request, we didn't hear anything. Days turned to weeks and weeks turned to months. Finally, I was exasperated and demanded some progress, so I asked for a meeting with the powers that be. At first, I was met with a rejection. That's not how it works, I was told. But after I reminded them that they promised me access and that their prescribed course of action wasn't working for me, they called their former friends and scheduled a meeting. When we arrived at the DOT building in Washington, D.C., we were ushered into an interior meeting room with no windows and seating for about 20 people. My team sat on one side of the table, anxiously awaiting the arrival of someone from the DOT so we could plead our case. The first group arrived and a couple of employees scurried to the end of the table. I was then caught by surprise when more people joined us. I leaned toward my attorney and asked why so many people would attend this meeting about my little startup. I knew walking into this meeting that there was a very asymmetric risk and reward system with regulators. If they agreed to something new and something bad happens, they could lose their careers. But if something good happens, they don't even get a reward. I mean, if you were faced with a big punishment for one outcome and no reward for the other, how would you respond? Well, my attorney leaned in without making eye contact and said, it's not every day that someone who has no experience in airlines shows up at the DOT to ask for permission to start one. You are like the two-headed snake at the state fair. Everyone wants to see it, but they have no idea why. I was distraught, confused, and running out of cash while waiting for the wheels of bureaucracy to turn. And then to add insult to injury, apparently I was the laughingstock of this whole meeting and paying $800 per hour to boot. With that revelation, my attorney opened the meeting with introductions all around. If there's one thing that I know how to do, it's read a room. I have a keen ability to analyze my audience and edit my presentation in real time to address their specific skepticisms. There are two rules to public speaking that I try to never forget. First, connect with the audience and empathize with their needs. And second, entertain them. This is what really gets them invested. In that sterile boardroom that day, it was my time to shine. I told them my story, how I'd spent two million miles packed in like a sardine on commercial flights, how I had endured delays, rerouting, rude flight attendants, huge change fees, and every other frustration any veteran traveler would know well, how I had a history of coming into industries that I had no experience in, finding some fundamental flaws that had not been fixed and helping them build businesses designed to address the problem while making money. How I saw the same inefficiencies in air travel, how the gap between private air travel and legacy air carriers was vast and needed to be closed. How I believe that Rise was built to do just that. They peppered us with questions about how we proposed to deal with specific regulations and we responded with our well-thought-out arguments. I had no desire to start Rise only to get it shut down in our first few months of flying. I needed this to last for decades. It was being built to last with no shortcuts and no gray areas. Lives and livelihoods were at stake. 
I see so many entrepreneurs looking for a shooting star, something to grow quickly and make them money before moving on to something else. I too was once like that, but I knew how quickly the burn fizzled. So I was determined to build something to last and taking a shortcut or finding a loophole would not cut it for me. I do not hide my frustrations well. I am a horrible liar, which turned out to be a really good characteristic in situations like that one. Why? Because all those people I was trying to get involved on the path to rise with me believed me. They looked into my eyes, and by the time the 90-minute meeting was over, even the top bureaucrat was with me. We want you to be successful, he said. We know that competition brings a better experience for everyone, and we desperately want it, but because of the high cost of entry, you don't see many new entrants. It will be a tough road for you, but we will do what we can to help. It's so frustrating to get letters about consumers' negative experiences and because of the lobbying power of the airlines. Our hands are tied and we can't affect much change. I was dumbfounded. 90 minutes earlier, I had thought this trip was a waste of money. And now we were walking away with a victory. Even our attorneys were surprised about the outcome of the meeting. The point of the story? Good entrepreneurs know that part of the path is getting other people involved. They know that the path can't be walked or won alone. And because of that, they're prepared not only to get other people involved, but to get the right people involved. The people will help you keep moving down the path toward your goal. Just keep going. Even as you learn to master all these principles and walk the clear path you've set before you, there will be factors beyond your control. Some will be peaks, the height of excitement, success, and achievement, and others, there'll be valleys, the moments that can bring you to your knees. The path of the good entrepreneur is filled with both. After I flew home from Washington, I expected everything to work out easily. I had been assured by all those who knew, those who had been in the industry for decades, that it would all work out in the end. With that assurance, I moved forward, hired employees, painting planes, setting up new offices, and finding new members. I was ready to go, tired of sitting on the sidelines and itching to start flying. Unfortunately, the DOT had other plans. Little did I know that their promise, we will do what we can to help, meant something completely different to me than it did my new friends in Washington. Their way wasn't fast enough for me. They would reach out periodically for additional information, which we would submit quickly. Then they would take weeks or even months to respond with additional questions. I was burning the candle at both ends, but they were in no hurry. To make matters worse, all of this back and forth was done via a public website in which anybody could search and see an application. I was nervous that a competitor was going to find our application, see our business plans, steal them from us, and move forward before we even got off the ground. To say this was a valley in my path would be an understatement. One week turned to one month, one month turned to two, The process seemed to never end. I had started on top of the world, but at this point I was questioning all my assumptions. The cash that we had raised to support growth was now being used just to survive. At about month five, my frustration really started to grow. I began to get nervous that this valley was the end of the path. I was not taking a salary at this time, a commitment I had made to myself and my investors until we started flying. Now I had to reach out to mentors and mentors to ask if they would do the same, knowing that my personal cash situation was mimicking that of my business. Each person I spoke with reminded me of my commitment and that my word was more important than my comfort. After all, we had no revenue coming in, so an additional expense made little sense. 
During this time, I met a new liaison at the DOT named Sarah, not her real name. Sarah was a lower level bureaucrat whose job was to monitor our application, ask for any additional information and keep us abreast of the timeline. Unfortunately for me, Sarah was under stringent rules about what she could and could not share with me. And unfortunately for her, I was not one to take no for an answer. Just as I was calling Sarah on repeat, my investors and members who had signed up with us were regularly calling me wondering when they could fly. And if they weren't calling, my worried employees were peppering me with their own questions. Although I told them what I knew, what I knew wasn't much. With each week that went by, my credibility evaporated more and more. The valley got deeper. Soon my wife, Angela, was frustrated too. Her frustrations around finances, my workaholism, and my continued increase in drinking were all legitimate. We had reached a pivotal point in the path. I was stuck in a paradox. On the outside, it looked like I was at a peak. My face was being printed in magazines and newspapers. I was being invited to all the parties, but below the surface, the valley was real. My cash was draining by the day. My chief fear was that we would run out of cash while waiting for approval, never launch rise, lose all our investors' money, and end up with a dozen lawsuits. At the root was the fear that somehow I'd end up in the same position as my father. So every time an angry investor would call wanting answers, I would go to a dark place. To be clear, I wasn't doing anything illegal. On the contrary, I instructed my attorneys to help me make every decision in a conservative manner, never even giving the impression of taking shortcuts. But in the end, none of that matters in the court of public opinion when people lose money. My emotions were all over the place. I was riding the peak with the never-ending invitations to events and sitting down in the valley each week when Sarah told me it wasn't going to be my week. It felt like my entire identity was on the line, and there the valley got darker. I didn't have a healthy mechanism to share my fears. Instead, I chose to drown my pain in alcohol and work. I would lash out at my employees, my family, and my friends. I knew I was being a jerk, but I didn't care. My kingdom was crumbling, and I thrashed about as it did, causing collateral damage with every move. On the outside, not getting approval to fly meant we would never fly, which was a terrible situation. But on the inside, I was dying under the fear that I was going to be a failure, that my path was going to end in this valley. After receiving the latest rejection from Sarah, I went into my bedroom and sat on my bed. Angela followed me and sat by my side, asking me what was happening. With tears streaming down my cheeks and my body shaking, I finally confessed out loud what had been echoing in my head. I didn't know how this was going to turn out. Outwardly, I put on a show of confidence, but on my bed that day, I broke down and shared all my fears. Once the fears were spoken into the ether, Angela held me and spoke words of affirmation to me. She didn't tell me that I was going to be successful, but rather that she would always be there by my side. I desperately wanted her words to be true, but I didn't believe they were. I thought my worth was set in my ability to be successful. I thought that was all there was to my path. In The Hard Things About the Hard Things, Building a Business When There Are No Easy Answers, Ben Horowitz tells the following story about his time as a CEO. At times like this, it's important to understand that nearly every company goes through life-threatening moments. My partner at Andreessen Horowitz, Scott Weiss, relayed that it's so common that there is an acronym for it, WIFIO, W-F-I-O, which stands for We're Effed, It's Over. As he described it, every company goes through at least two and up to five of these episodes. 
although I'm pretty sure I went through at least a dozen at Opsware. In all cases, WeFios feel much worse than they are, especially for the CEO. I think any good entrepreneur can relate because every journey contains peaks and valleys. We can't have one without the other. And if we want to keep walking the path towards success, we have to be willing to lean into and learn from both. That day, I was smack dab in the middle of my first WeFio moment. What I wanted more than anything else in the world was to survive it so I could have the privilege of facing the next one that came my way. Because these moments, these deep and dark valleys, are part of the process. They're part of the path. And any good entrepreneur who has a clear path knows they're just moments. They will pass and give way to a new peak. But we won't know unless we keep going. Unless we keep following our clear path. Okay, so here's our end of chapter homework. How clear is your path? For this exercise, I want you to take out your journal and write down the five principles from the beginning of the chapter. Number one, cash is king. Number two, solve a problem. Number three, see around the corner. Number four, get others on board. Number five, just keep going. Now, for each principle, give yourself a score from one to 10 based on how you're doing in that particular area, one being the worst and 10 being the best. If you are running low on cash and you are consistently worried about payroll, you are much closer to a one than a 10. If you have a product, but no one is using it, does it really solve a problem? What are your 10-year, five-year, one-year, and six-month strategic plans for your business? Are you leaning on others to help and not trying to be a lone wolf? Take your time and be honest in your evaluation. Once you have scored each principle, rank them from lowest to highest. You now have the priorities for your business figured out. Now is the time to attack each one in order, starting with the lowest score and working towards the highest score. Now answer these questions. What is the takeaway from your example? What action will you take this week to increase your score? And who do you need to ask for help? Do this exercise once a month and keep track of your scores in a spreadsheet so you can keep a history of them, making it easier to see patterns in your business. I guarantee you if you excel at these principles, you will be well on your way to success. If a distraction arises that doesn't support one of these five principles, put it on the back burner until you have better stability.